0: in the New Testament. Our text will be Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. The topic, we'll see the apostles and disciples gathered in the upper room make a decision to choose Matthias as the 12th apostle. The title of our message, Eeny, Meeny, Miney, Matthias. Verse 12. I'm just waiting for you to get there, that's all. I'm trying to be courteous. I'm done being courteous. <laughs> Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. It's a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, altogether the number of names was about 120, and said... Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So that field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office." Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Let's pray. Lord, it's our desire to learn more about you through your word in this passage of scripture. We believe that you've chosen this for us this morning, Lord nothing really random in your universe, in your kingdom. And though we're all here together from many walks of life with many different situations, some of us being blessed, some of us being buffeted, these words can be translated by your spirit to minister to us, to lift us up, to encourage us, to correct us, to teach us. Do all those things and more, we pray. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said Amen. It's estimated that you make as many as 1,000 decisions each day. Most of your decisions are trivial, but some of them may be momentous. If you're a Christian, you not only make lots of decisions each day, but you want them to reflect your love for Jesus Christ. You want them to be consistent with the will of God for your life. Good, godly decision-making is something we should all strive for. One way to grow in our own decision-making is to analyze the good, godly decisions we discover when reading the Bible. The first followers of Jesus were waiting for the baptism with the Holy Spirit, During those 10 days between Jesus' ascension and the day of Pentecost, they made many thousands of individual decisions. They made some corporate decisions and they made one momentous decision. They chose Matthias to replace Judas Iscariot as the 12th apostle. Watching them and listening to them in the upper room, we can learn some things about good godly decision making. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, make your decisions with an upper room mentality And number two, make your decisions with an upper room finality. First of all, in verses 12 through 14, make your decisions with an upper room mentality. The first three verses of our text describe the general atmosphere of the upper room. The things we observe about the disciples are a kind of mentality that they had that we can adopt for good godly decision making. And the first thing we observe is their obedience to the Lord. In verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. It's a Sabbath day's journey. Just as he ascended from the Mount of Olives, the Lord Jesus told his disciples to return to Jerusalem and to wait there for the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And we see in verse 12, they did exactly that. And so we would say that they were obedient. They obeyed their Lord. And it may seem redundant. It may not seem like something that we need to talk about. But if you obey the Lord, you're going to find yourself exactly where you are supposed to be. In the right relationships, at the right church, in the right job, all of these things, you're gonna be where you're supposed to be. You're not confused or conflicted about previous decisions and you can therefore make future decisions with a greater confidence. Sometimes, you know, if, as we disobey the Lord, we pile upon ourselves more and more bad decisions and you almost don't know how to get, you know, where do you go back? Do you go back and start from this point or do you go over here? What do you do at that point? And the Lord has to give us counsel and wisdom. But much better to just be in a place where you're submitted to the Lord. I'm obeying the Lord as as I know how to do it with the help of his Holy Spirit. Believe that I'm in the place that the Lord wants me to be so that if I face a decision, I don't have any excess baggage right now that I haven't yet dealt with. And so uh, obey the Lord. Next, we observe their fellowship in verses 13 and 14. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers." Now, it, it, this is the upper room, and it's emphatic in the text, and that is uh, probably the same one in which they had shared a Last Supper with Jesus. It would have been obviously a large upper story over a home. This one could easily accommodate 120 people. The 11 remaining disciples are listed, many for the last time in Scripture. It isn't that they weren't as important to the Lord or to his work. It's just that their work wasn't necessary to record in scripture. It's recorded in heaven. We have a celebrity mentality. Uh, If people are in the news, we feel like they are successful, that their career is advancing and, and good things are happening to them. And then every once in a while they do these shows, whatever happened to, and you think, yeah, whatever happened to that guy? I was watching, I think I was, it was Bill O'Reilly the other night I was watching, and they had uh, the guy who was in the original Dukes of Hazard television series, and he was talking about what a phenomena the Dukes of Hazard television series was back uh, whenever it was, I think, probably in the 70s. And uh, he had like an eight-year run where he was like a rock star the Duke of Hazard. And then for the last, I don't know, 30 years, he's been a nobody. And, and that's the way we think. We have this celebrity mindset or you know, we wanna see achievements after a person. And, and here we see that almost none of these apostles of the Lord uh, are recorded in terms of what they did after this time. The book of Acts, I told you last week, there's a lot about Peter. There's a lot about Paul, who wasn't even one of these original guys. James is mentioned a couple of times, John has one or two mentions, and that's really it. But we're not to think that these guys, in some way, didn't accomplish their purpose or, or uh, do their work for the Lord. Instead, I take great comfort in the fact that most of the original apostles are obscure to us, because they represent you and I. And the vast majority of believers whose work for the Lord is unknown to most people, but known intimately to the Lord. Hey, I, you know, let's face it. I've said this before, and I, I, I mean it. Most of us are not going to do anything noteworthy. Uh, you know, we're, we're not going to be reported on in Christianity today, or uh, we're not going to, you know, hit the. Uh, we're not going to be on Bill O'Reilly. You know, at least the Dukes of Hazard guy was on Bill O'Reilly. He was somebody. I remember in the first Rocky movie, Rocky says, at least you had a prime. <laughs> he never had a prime. And uh, so, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're nobodies. We are Christian nobodies. We're quietly living in uh, the most beautiful place in the world, Central California. Oh, what's the matter? And uh, I meant that with all my heart. I love California. Anyway, uh, we're quietly living here, raising our families, preaching the Lord, doing these things. We're, we're really not on anybody's radar. We don't want to be, but we're not. And there is a tendency sometimes in our individual lives, no matter how much or little influence we have, to think that we're nobodies. Next time you think you're a nobody, try and remember what Bartholomew did. This guy, I mean, imagine you're an apostle. You're mentioned in the first chapter of Acts, and you're thinking, okay, where's my stuff? I did stuff. And they're just, no. And so we don't need that. We're we're not looking for that. And the sooner we get over things like that, the better it'll be and the more free we are to just serve the Lord and to just be content. One of the biggest problems in the Christian life is learning to be content where God has put you. We just talked about being where you're supposed to be. A lot of times people are not content where they're supposed to be in the life that they have. Uh, and, and so we need to learn to be content. Among the women, all of Mary's were probably there. Mary Magdalene, who recently starred in The Da Vinci Code. Uh, <laughs> what a ridiculous thesis. But anyway, Mary, the wife of Clopas, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary and her sister, Martha. Now, I'm not going to spend any time pointing out that Mary was called the mother of Jesus and not the mother of God, which is a blasphemy, or that she fades from the scene after this mention, or that no one prayed either to her or through her, or that she considered herself a humble disciple in need of the baptism of the Holy Spirit just like everyone else, or that no special place of authority or influence was given to her while Jesus was alive uh, before his death or after his death. I'm not going to talk to you about that at all. (laughs) Jesus' brothers were there, half-brothers, really. They were born to Joseph and Mary after Jesus was virgin-born. They were unbelievers until after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and then they understood that big brother Jesus was the Son of God. Their names were James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon. I guess by the time Simon was born, they ran out of J names, For their babies. Well, you know, people still do this. Don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) According to Mark chapter 6, verse 3, Jesus also had half sisters. So I don't need to point out that Mary was not a perpetual virgin, she had children after Jesus was born. Now, these disciples were told continued in fellowship. It was a unique time for sure, this 10 days. But they would also continue in fellowship after receiving the baptism with the Holy Spirit. In fact, it would be a mark of the early church. They would teach us by word and example about the importance of continuing in fellowship in a body of believers. And so if we're wanting to know how it is we go about making good and godly decisions. Another thing is to just be a member of, a part of a body of believers. There are a lot of benefits towards decision-making there. One of them, just one thing, you're gonna be held accountable to a certain level if you're a part of a body. There is a positive peer pressure that can keep you from getting drawn into the world. Parents are always concerned about negative peer pressure. You don't want your children around certain individuals or influences because it can pressure them in the wrong way. But there is a positive peer pressure as well. And, and that is exerted in a supernatural way just as you are a member of the church because you, you are thinking of your connection with other people you're going to see other people. They're going to ask you what you've been doing, where you've gone, you know, what, what your interests are, those kinds of things. And some of the things in the world that would seduce us and, and that we would maybe hide away and, and have in secret, we're less likely to be drawn into those areas, really, if we have this positive peer pressure of other believers. And I think it's a good thing. I mean, churches sure can go overboard. I mean, you know, they, they, they can invade your life and tell you what to do and what not to do and be real restrictive and all that and invade your privacy. We're not gonna give you any GPS stuff, but, you know, you understand what I mean? I mean, I know churches are famous for this, but there is a real positive peer pressure, and I think sometimes the only thing keeping some people from really falling off the grid is that they're connected to the fellowship. Is that they come to church. And, and, and that's a great thing. Hey, if, if I'm so weak that I can't really make it on my own, then I ought to acknowledge that and be around people who can help me and hold me accountable and give me that positive peer pressure. And so be in fellowship with the Lord and with other believers as much as possible. Next, we see that there was an atmosphere of prayer. This is the first of at least 18 prayer meetings in the book of Acts, and it really wasn't a prayer meeting. They prayed and then went to the temple and then came back to the upper room and went to the temple and came back, and so they were on and off having prayer meetings for 10 days. But you can identify at least 18 different prayer meetings, counting this as just one, in the book of Acts. And this is going to be obviously an undercurrent Uh, to the, the joy and the effectiveness of the early church is that they were men and women deeply committed to prayer, deeply submitted to the Lord and hearing his voice. And so these disciples were exactly where they were supposed to be. They were in constant fellowship with one another and they continually prayed It's a mentality that contributes to good, godly decision-making. A decision was about to be made from which we can glean several more insights for ourselves. In verses 13 through uh, 26, make your decisions with an upper room finality. Now, there's a lot of scholarly controversy surrounding the selection of Matthias. If you've been in church uh, for any length of time or heard the book of Acts taught ever, You may have heard a a pastor or read a commentary that suggests that Peter was ahead of himself, impulsive, shouldn't have stood up the way he did, and that they weren't supposed to pick Matthias to replace Judas Iscariot, because obviously Paul was God's choice uh, for the 12th apostle. And a lot is made of this. I've read pages and pages about this, about how this was the wrong move uh, for the early church. I have a personal problem with that. The personal problem is I'm gonna see Peter one day in heaven and I'm not sure that he was wrong and I don't wanna be telling hundreds of people that Peter was wrong. Sounds like gossip or backbiting almost. I mean, the Bible doesn't say he's wrong. Plus Peter, now I don't know everything there is to know about our glorified bodies, but Peter in his physical body was a big, strong, bulky fisherman. There's a couple of passages that suggest that he had inordinate strength. And when they couldn't pull up the nets, they'd say, hey, Pete, man, we need help. And he would just haul in these nets full of fish, like in Finding Nemo there at the end. (laughs) Remember when they're swimming down? Swimming, keep swimming, you know, remember that? Okay, I can only tell you about. It. I can't show the video because we'd have to pay royalties. Otherwise, that would have been a great sermon illustration. But anyway, uh, so anyway, so Peter, so I don't want to get to heaven and have Peter find me in a. I guess it would be a light alley. There are no dark alleys. But more to the point, biblically, we want to be biblical. My personal opinion, notwithstanding. The the choosing of Matthias was necessary and it was of the Lord and I know that because a little bit later on in the book of Acts, after we've forgotten this Matthias controversy, a situation arises in the early church where they are not taking care of the widows properly and so they come to the apostles and they say, hey, you guys need to take care of the widows better and uh, they say, it's not for us to, leave the word of God and prayer and to serve table. so you pick out seven men among you and it's the beginning of the deacon ministry of the, uh, of the church. In that passage, the Holy Spirit who is inspiring Luke to write this uh, account talks about the apostles and he calls them the 12. He doesn't call them the 11 and this other guy we shouldn't have chosen. <laughs> he calls them the 12. And he puts his stamp of approval on the fact that Matthias was to be chosen as the 12th apostle. So, is that important? Well, it is if we want to learn anything about decision-making, because if this is a bad decision, then we shouldn't do any of these things but it's a good decision, and we should do all of these things. And what we can do is learn that our decisions overall, as we go through these remaining scriptures, must depend upon and be grounded upon the word of God. And that may sound obvious, but it's not. So verse 15 and 16. In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. There were more believers than 120. I just want to Note this, sometimes people will say, you know, after Jesus' ministry, there were only these 120 people who believed in him. We know that's not true because in another part of scripture it says he was seen in his resurrection body by 500 believers at one time, and this was before his ascension. So there were at least 500 believers on the earth uh, at that time, maybe more. It wasn't a huge amount of people, It wasn't like the day of Pentecost when 3,000 are going to be saved, Uh, but but there were 120 in this room in Jerusalem at that time. And in verse 16, he said, "'Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus.'" Peter is going to remember and utilize the Word of God throughout this section. He's going to refer to Psalm 41, verse 9, Psalm 69, verse 25, and Psalm 109, verse 8. And he will refer to something Jesus told them while he was on the earth before his ascension. Peter said it had to be fulfilled. What's he talking about? He's talking about a scripture in Psalms, Psalm 41, verse 9, which reads, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. When that was written in Psalm 41, verse nine, David was talking about a betrayal within his uh, cabinet or his court. And it probably refers to his counselor, Ahithophel, who rebelled against David and went with David's son, Absalom, when Absalom tried to take over the kingdom. Jesus, when he was discussing the betrayal of Judas Iscariot, applied that scripture. And in so doing, he told his disciples, David wrote it originally about himself, but it also had a prophetic future reference to what's happening here at the Last Supper, to Judas departing to betray me before we get to the Last Supper. And, And Jesus used it that way. And Peter is remembering this and he basically tells the disciples, hey, this was the word of God and it was a prophetic word and it had to be fulfilled. Peter and the other disciples were undoubtedly greatly comforted as they saw the prophetic value of the word of God. God was in control even while Judas was betraying Jesus. Now think of this for a minute. We still struggle today with the betrayal of Judas. It, we it, Scratch our heads a little bit, scholars argue about it. How is it that this person could be with the Lord for three and a half years, could perform miracles, raise the dead, and then turn out to be the one who would betray the Lord? If you're an apostle, if you're one of the 11, you're maybe thinking, Could I too apostatize? Will I go from apostle to apostate? And you remember at the Last Supper, they were worried when Jesus said one of them would betray him. They said, is it I? And so this is really a concern of these guys and it remains a concern today among Christians. So much so that there are solid Christian commentators to avoid this issue. They say, well, Judas wasn't even really a man. He was the devil because there's a scripture where Jesus said One of you will betray me, and he is the devil. And so they comment that, well, then he wasn't even a real man, and so that solves it for them. So it's a real issue. It's a real problem. It's resolved in our mind. Judas was never a believer, and he was personally responsible for his choice. But now Peter has this word of prophecy saying, hey, this is exactly what was going to happen And it comforts them. Biblical prophecy is intended to comfort us. And what greater comfort than to know that God is sovereign. The next thing to point out about God's word is that it is inspired. Peter said that the Holy Spirit spoke it through David. While we may see this as obvious, more and more professing Christians are arguing that the Bible is less than the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God. And many sincere Christians seem to approach the Bible as if it weren't always profitable to tell them how to live. And so I mentioned earlier in our prophecy update how that one of the areas that we can be looking at to know that we're in the last days is a growing apostasy or a falling away from the true faith. And uh, for example always in the news because the the news people like to rub it in our faces, all of these professing Christian groups and denominations who are now uh, ordaining homosexuals and lesbians who are promoting same-sex unions. You cannot defend that from the Bible. It is contrary to Scripture. You have to You have to step back from the Bible, which they do now, and say, this is what the Bible says, but it's not completely true. It's not really the entire word of God because we see now we've evolved into something greater as a society. And they're not believing in the inspiration of scripture. It's just as simple as that. And so that's where the battle is. We should talk to people about, you know, if God hasn't spoken to you through the Bible if it just has a few things here and there that are from God? First of all, how do you know which ones are from God? And secondly, why would you study it at all? Why not just throw it in the trash and do whatever you feel like doing? And so the Bible either is the word of God or it's not. It either is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God or it's not. There's no what we would call wiggle room there to come up with our own ideas and interpretations. And so a lot of professing Christians are being drawn away by these things. And then a lot of solid Christians who otherwise believe in the inerrancy and the infallibility and the inspiration of scripture, they believe in it while they're yet denying it because they're in a situation they don't like, typically a marriage, and they say, we're getting out of this. I don't like this, I don't like you, and you don't like me. We have no grounds for divorce, but we're gonna divorce anyway. I know what God says, but he'll forgive me for it. And okay, I guess that's true, but you're denying that it's God who said it. I have a hard time believing that if Jesus Christ was was physically present, you would say that to him. I mean, and if you, I wouldn't want to be in the room if you did, I mean, it just, not so much that, not even so much that lightning would strike you, but that it would break, wouldn't it break your heart? If Jesus were, were there with, it, the, you know, the, the, the wounds from the cross, I mean, imagine a marriage counseling situation and, the, in, in, you know, these couple, they're at each other and they just don't like each other. Things didn't work out the way they thought or whatever. They've, they've got real problems, don't get me wrong. I understand that people have problems, but they don't have any grounds for divorce and you're telling them, you know, the Holy Spirit can come and he can save your marriage. He did it to me, he did it here and just stuff. And they're just, no, I'm not gonna do it. I know what God says, but I'm not gonna do it. And so, Can you wait a minute? There's somebody else I'd like you to talk to. And then you have Jesus come in the room. I mean, come on. I would think that they, but, but a lot of times, and not just in marriages, but in a lot of other areas, we have a tendency to say, well, I, I do believe it's the inspired word of God. I'm just not going to obey it right now. And it's, it amounts to the same thing. It's a denial that it's God saying it. And so we wanna be careful. You cannot make good, godly decisions unless you believe the inspiration of the Bible. Now then, Peter and Luke, in a parenthesis, discuss the events surrounding Judas Iscariot. Verse 17, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. And then Luke uh, in verses 18 and 19 adds these graphic details. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his guts gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So that field is called in their own language, Al-Kaldama, that is field of blood. When you put all the biblical accounts together, you learn that Judas hung himself and then either the rope or the branch broke, causing him to fall on jagged rocks beneath where he burst open on the rocks and all his guts gushed out. I don't know why I like saying that. (laughs) Verse 20, for it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. Convinced of God's sovereign purpose concerning Judas, Peter is now open to the Holy Spirit reminding him of two other scriptures, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Psalm 69 seems to describe what happened to Judas and Psalm 109 talks about what they should do about his empty office. Again, the original application of these psalms was for King David, but they had a prophetic application for David's descendant, Jesus Christ and for his disciples. And so really the Holy Spirit took the word of God he had inspired and he had Jesus apply it prophetically to Judas and now he has Peter apply it prophetically to Judas. I want to suggest to you that the Holy Spirit is still capable of taking the written word of God and applying it prophetically to our lives, to your life. Maybe not as dramatically as dissolving the dilemma of Judas or choosing the next apostle. But if you're open to it, and you should be, let the word of God dwell in you richly, read the word of God, and as you're needing to make decisions, there will be times, more times, if you'll open yourself up to it, where the Lord will give you a scripture, a story from scripture, an area of scripture that will speak to your situation. And will resolve the dilemma or make the decision for you. And and we just need to be a little bit open to this. We want to be careful, pray about it, get counsel about it, because, you know, people use the word of God for all kinds of crazy things too. But, you know, as you're walking with the Lord, growing in sensitivity to his spirit, he will speak to you through his word in this way. Uh, and what a great comfort to know not only that God is in control, but that God knows your situation and can minister to you through the word of God. Verse 21, therefore of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias, Why these particular criteria? Well, I believe that they were according to the word of God. Jesus once told these apostles in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, this is Jesus speaking, he said, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, talking about the coming kingdom, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me, will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus was talking to his disciples when he said, you who have, in the past tense, followed me. He's talking to the 12, but he was talking to other disciples who were there as well. And Peter now takes this literally to mean that someone who had been among them from the entire time of Jesus' ministry is a person that Jesus had in mind to take the place of Judas and eventually sit on that 12th throne. Because, you know, God wasn't done with these guys in the first century and he's not done with them after we're taken up to heaven, after the tribulation in the kingdom, they're going to have work to do as well. And so, Peter says, hey, we can put Judas into perspective, and now we know where he's gone, and it's all biblical, and we should f- fill his office with another, and because of what Jesus said, we ought to do it with somebody who meets the criteria that Jesus laid out. And so it's, it's really very biblical. Every, it's being led by the Spirit as the Holy Spirit gives Peter these particular verses that all fit in together to lead them to this point. And by the way, while we are excited about a prophetic application of scripture, finding a verse that speaks to our need at that particular moment, don't neglect the literal application of scripture. Peter said, hey, this is exactly what Jesus said we should do. And the truth is, though we do make thousands of decisions every day perhaps and sometimes have to make momentous decisions like who to marry and what job and what career and those kinds of things, Most of our decisions are made for us and even the big decisions are always framed by things that are already decided for us. For example, you want to get married. Well, you already know you have to marry a Christian, a solid Christian, somebody who loves the Lord, uh, because that's what the word of God says. And so it's not, so yes, it's kind of freaky, you know, who am I gonna marry and how's, how am I gonna find that person and does that, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But you do have some parameters already. If you're out in the business world, if you're at school, if you're in a marriage, there are many boundaries and parameters, many decisions have already been made for you. Things that you can do, things that you can't do, things that you should do. And then within that, God says now if you'll do these other things, if you'll be obedient and you'll pray and you'll be in fellowship with other believers and if you'll have a, a high regard for the word of God, then my decision will unfold and you'll be confident of it. At least two men met the stated qualifications. Verse 23, and they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas who was surnamed Justice and Matthias. I guess J names were really big in those days. And they prayed and said, you, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. The casting of lots was a biblical means of decision-making up until the events of Acts chapter 2. Sometimes they would put two stones in a bag, one black and one white, one representing yes, one representing no, and then they would choose and they would trust that it was the Lord's choice. In this case, they may have put uh, Matthias on one rock and... Uh, this other guy with the J names on the other rock and then whoever they picked. And we're not sure exactly the process, but this was, there are many times in the Old Testament they cast lots. There's a proverb that says, we cast the lot, but the Lord brings the disposition. So this was perfectly normal before the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now we don't really do this anymore. Uh, Or at least we don't here. You might do this at home, but, uh, you know, we... It'd be a lot easier, to tell you the truth, in one sense, just if, you know, sometimes you're deciding just, hey, you guys put some rocks in a bag and pick one out. But we feel like we can be more spirit-led as we just wait on the Lord and he tells us what to do. But this was was normal, so there's nothing wrong with this. Now, there are three more things that uh, we can learn about decision-making. First of all, they prayed again. Prayer was not just the atmosphere of the upper room; it was the life breath of the early church. Even after God spoke to them prophetically through His Word and they knew what to do, they still prayed about it because they wanted to remain humble. And secondly, they were humble. There was no lobbying for one man or the other. This wasn't an election. Uh, these guys didn't probably didn't uh, submit a resume. They met the qualifications. Uh, They didn't have to defend themselves or give an oratory because the apostles looked and they said, You know, Lord, you know the heart. You know who you have gifted and equipped for this ministry. We don't. There's no way. We can only look on the outside. We get in so much trouble looking on the outward man, on the outward woman. We make so many bad choices based on what we would do in our business or in some other environment. And when we take those criteria and apply them to the church, we always weaken the church because we end up choosing wrongly. Uh, And so they said, no, we wanna humble ourselves. God, this is your choice. Uh, We're gonna leave it up to you. And then they were men of faith, both for doing that, trusting the Lord to decide, but also once the Lord decided Once they had a name, then they stepped forward boldly by faith and said, Matthias is the 12th apostle. And they didn't have any of these discussions that modern scholars have about, hey Peter, do you think you were being impetuous when you stood up and impulsive? Do you really think Matthias was the guy? They just received it as from the Lord. They did everything they knew how to do to humble themselves, to pray about it, to search the scripture. And once they were assured that it was from the Lord, then they stuck to that decision, and they walked by faith in it. And, and these guys are, I mean, these are men of faith. Imagine you're in the chur- a church setting, and l- we'll get to chapter six, but and they come to the leaders of the church, these 12 guys, and they say, hey, the widows are being neglected. These widows are getting more, and these widows are getting less based on their ethnicity. And these guys said, yeah, we're not gonna, we're not gonna wait on tables. Maybe you don't know that we're called to study the word of God and to pray. You pick out seven men filled with the Holy Spirit and you resolve this problem. Wow, man, that's not a purpose-driven church. I mean, that's, that's not a friendly church at all. Can you imagine if I said something like that? Well, I do say things like that. But when I do say things like that, People go out in the community and say, man, Calvary Chapel's the most unfriendly church in the world. Why? Well, they have their reason, but they say, why? Well, because they're doing this kind of biblical stuff. And and do you understand? I mean, these guys, once they decided and knew what they were supposed to do, they they were tunnel vision on this stuff. We just studied the book of Nehemiah. That was one of the great qualities of Nehemiah. People are trying to draw him off left and right, get him off track, and he said, no, I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm not gonna meet with you. Say whatever you want about me. This is a great work and we're doing it for the Lord. I think sometimes we can be cocky and, and arrogant. That's not what I'm talking about. And believe me, I know that I'm capable of that. That's what defined me before I was a Christian uh, completely. I was all bluster and cockiness and arrogance. However, being confident about God's decision isn't the same thing. And a lot of times I think Christians need to be more confident. If you know you're doing what God wants you to do, doing it the way God wants you to do it, then do it. Be gentle, be humble, be prayerful, be all of those things, but don't be dissuaded. Oh, somebody doesn't like me. Oh, somebody's criticizing me. So what? Is this from the Lord or not? And if it is, then walk by faith in a finality. Some of our decisions need to have a greater finality. Otherwise, you say, you're saying, yeah, gee, I don't know if that's from the Lord or not. We're just playing a game here. Uh, I, I, let's try something else. And, and we need to be very, very careful about this. They were men of faith, and I appreciate that about these guys. And they were men of, just like us. We're not talking about Jesus here. We're talking about Peter, big, burly, strong fisherman who had very little education. And, and you know, uh, and James tells us that Elijah even was a man just like us with like passions. But man, once those guys knew what they were supposed to do, Elijah walked into the court of Ahab and he said, hey, by the way, it's not going to rain anymore for three years until I say so. See you later. <laughs> man, I mean, what are you talking about? And it didn't rain until he said so because he had heard from the Lord. And so we, it's, it's an interesting, interesting thing. Let's apply the word. You need to make a decision. Make sure you are where you ought to be. And I don't mean just physically, I mean spiritually. Where are you supposed to be? Be there. Second, be in close fellowship with other believers. Third, be praying. Pray it through. Be praying about it all the time. Fourth, hold the word of God in the highest possible regard. Have as a prerequisite in your heart that if the word of God tells you what to do, you will do it no matter how difficult, no matter what your feelings are, you're going to do it. Fifth, search out the word of God for principles and precepts that are already laid down and for prophecies maybe that God would give to you. Sixth, pray about it some more. Seventh, humble yourself before the Lord. Tell him that any decision he makes, you'll accept. And then finally, eight, step out in faith, confident in the finality of your decision. If you're not a Christian, there's only one decision that is of any real consequence. It's your decision to confess that you're a sinner, that you're in need of the only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. People say that there are many roads that lead to God. I was just reading, um, I'll tell you more about this later because I wanna get the quote right, but I was reading about one of the uh, individuals being considered as the next president of the United States and uh, he professes to be a Christian, and he's quoted as saying that there are many roads that lead to God, many faiths. Well, the truth is, all roads lead to God. However, you don't want to get there on some of those roads. You You know what I'm talking about? Everybody is going to stand before God one day. There's a narrow road that leads to salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father to be saved except by me. And so that's the road of salvation. But everybody's gonna stand before God at the great white throne judgment of God. You're a Muslim, you're a Buddhist, you're a Hindu, you're a Zoroastrian, you're an atheist. I just like saying that too. You're a Zoroastrian with your entrails Hanging out. I don't, Anyway, everybody's going to come to God. But at the great white throne judgment of God, there's no hope of getting into heaven. It's a, it's a revelation that you missed the one way of getting into heaven, that you had the opportunity and blew off the responsibility and instead trusted in yourself or your own works through some of these other weird religious systems or philosophies, and you're going to find that it's too late. And so there's a sense, if somebody ever says to you all roads lead to God, blow their mind and say you agree with that. But they need to be on the one road that leads to salvation because they don't want to end up on that broad path that leads to destruction. And so really, there's only one decision that you have to make this morning if you're not a Christian, and that is, will you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because if you won't, you're going to see God, but it's not the way that you think. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for these things. They're precious, as always. They're too much for us. They overwhelm us. There's a sense in which we, in our spirit, Lord, fall before you, prostate, and and just don't know what to do. But we thank you, Lord, that you trust us with these things and you tell us what we need to know and we listen to them. And hopefully, Lord, we begin to apply them by the ministry and power of your spirit. Maybe we've made some decisions that have been wrong, Lord. I pray that you would give us some wisdom on how to deal with those. Maybe we're facing some decisions today and encourage us, Lord, in some of these areas to search your word, trust your word, to spend more time in prayer, to get the opinion and counsel of other Christians, Lord, in our fellowship and all of those things that we've talked about. And maybe there's one or two or several individuals here this morning, Lord, who don't know you. And I pray, Lord, that as we close our service this morning and and dismiss, that they would be compelled by your Holy Spirit to come forward and Uh, Open their hearts to the guys that will be here, Lord, and ask to uh, receive Christ as their Savior. Maybe there's some Christians here, Lord, who need to rededicate their lives to you. They're not where they should be, and you've prompted them, Lord, to turn back to you, return to their first love. May they come forward, Lord, on their own and and just pray with the guys that uh, are here to pour out their lives to them. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen. Let's stand together, please.